Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to gather together this morning. We pray that you would quiet any distracting thoughts that might take our focus away from your word. Your word tells us that you will never fail to keep your promises. And with that, we thank you for being a father who promises to make all things new. Please work through Pastor Winter in a manner that's pleasing to you. Finally, Lord, we ask that your spirit be felt among us as we bow to the authority of your word. We love you very much. Amen. This morning, I have the pleasure of introducing our guest preacher today. He is the lead pastor at Redemption Alhambra. So, Wayne Winter. Good morning, fam. How y'all doing? Y'all good? This is a beautiful congregation. Amen. I'm excited to dive in the text. I um, from, bring greetings from Redemption Alhambra uh, Church, and um, I just love being a part of this whole thing. So I'm excited to get a chance to fellowship with you guys this morning. <clears throat> We're in Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 7, going to all of chapter 53. And I love these times when we get to go through um, parts of Scripture that especially in the Old Testament that you see talked about or connected in the New Testament. This morning, this is one of those, those times because I love to look at how they was processing the exact same verses that, that I'm processing right now, right? Um, so I don't have any slides because I didn't send it to them in time. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'll throw out scriptures and you can write them down. But um, Acts 8, 26 to 35 is one of those, those times where you have the Ethiopian eunuch and, 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 and he has this encounter with Philip. I'm going to just read what goes on right there. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And I love that, that they was processing this exact text, and he's like, let me tell you who Isaiah was talking about. 
Another one of my favorite texts is, is what comes next in 52, 7 through 10. And, and I'll, by the time I'm done, I would have read through all of it, right? So let me read that right there. 52, 7 through 10, you can look over to it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. In those times, most wars was, was fought in a pre-selected area. It was sort of to try to protect the civilians of, of what was going on. And so they can be like, yo, we're going to meet at 3 o'clock over there inside that field, and we're going to fight over there, right? And unless someone was trying to sort of invade and they was, they was attacking that way, when that would happen, they, would, they have watchmen that was on the towers, and they was looking from afar, and they could see when somebody was coming, and they would let the people know, this person is coming, that person is coming. Now, if it was a, a war, the watchman would notice an, an, an army approaching from afar that was going on, and he would notify the town, he would notify the army, the, the, the army people, and they would put the gear on, and they would go out to meet the threat head on, try to get it away from the town. And they would go out and they would go to war. And while there was war, the women and the children would stay. The, the elderly would stay. And, and those that couldn't help us out the war so efficiently, they would, they would end up staying back at the town. And the watchmen, they would look intently. They would look in the direction of the battlefield for a messenger that would come with news of what's happening on the battlefield. What is going on there? The watchman will look towards the direction for, of the battle, waiting for an update. What's going on? What's happening? How's it going? Now, Jerusalem was surrounded by mountains. So the war will be likely on the other side of the mountains to keep it away from them. Just giving context to this beginning section right here. And, 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 and so if a messenger was coming, you would see the messenger riding or running down the side of the mountain, and he is shouting one of two things, and, and, and because he's hoping that the watchman would hear him and, and hear his words, and then the watchman would turn around and, and, and echo those words and yell to the people, and he was saying one of two things. Either it was bad news, and he's like, all is lost. All is lost, and this is the marker for them to, to run, to hide, to grab their stuff and, 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 and go because there was a fair captivity. If all is lost and, and, the, and, the, and the king has fallen, that means that that, that opposing army is going to come and, and snatch people up. They're going to they're gonna loot. They're going to loot the land. Um, women will be raped. They're going to grab the children. They're going to take people home and hold them captive. So he's trying to get the word out. All is lost, grab your stuff and jet. Hurry up. Trying to get that word out. So that's one thing. Or it may be something else. Good news. Good news. Our king reigns. 
King Darius reigns. King whoever, he reigns, he reigns. Good news, good news. Our king is victorious. The people would have been waiting to know what is going on so they know what to do next. This means that if our king reigns, then there's nothing to fear. If our king is victorious, there is, there is nothing to, 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 to fear. So they would start lining the streets, waiting for the return of the king and his, and his army. And they would start singing songs of joy because they want to greet the king. They want to greet the army that, that's coming back in. So, so this gives a little bit of feel of context for what's being said here in the beginning. In their case, the king is coming to free his people that were already taken captive. They would now be free. Whenever we're reading scripture and you think about, like, how should we receive that today? And one of the things that come to my mind is, 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 is just knowing that sin has been holding humanity captive. And all of creation has been waiting for our king to set us free. All of creation. The thing is, we've been captive so long that we don't even know what freedom is. We've been captive so long, so shaped by the captivity, so, so formed by it, and it's so woven into every aspect of our, of, of our, of our lives. We don't even realize aspects of captivity that, that we've joined in on and celebrate around. It's been all that we've known, all that we've seen. Nevertheless, the war has already happened. The war has already happened. Our king went to war and has already won. And he's charged his messengers. He releases messengers with the task of going and telling the good news your king has won and, 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 and he has set you free already. You're no longer captives. What does this mean to our hearts and our minds when we hear this? To the captives that's, that's locked down, that's, that's waiting for news from the battlefront. Those sweaty Dirty, probably even bloody feet running down the side of that mountain, yelling good news, how beautiful. How beautiful are the feet that carry the news of our freedom. Then he says this in 10, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. His holy arm, his arm, is, is, it, this is a military term that's talking about power. Military power, his holy arm, the arm of, 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 of power. And, and, and it's like a, like a war general, the, his, his, his arm. And he will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of the nations. The imagery here is, is his, he's rolling up his sleeves. He's exposing his arms because he's, he's about to get busy. 
He's laying it bare. People can see under his sleeves as he's rolling it up. And and the nations will see his power and his his might. And and it will be a testimony that will echo throughout the earth. In this victory, we will tell the story of God's love. Tell the story of a God who rolled up his sleeves in in the sight of everyone to get busy to save his, his people. And the next couple of verses give some instructions to these newly freed people and some encouragement to them. 11 and 12, he says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no one clean thing. Come out from it and be pure. You who carry the articles of the Lord's house, but you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Instruction, depart and go out from there. He's telling them to depart from the place of captivity. Leave from that place. You see, even even today as we, we walk this thing out, many of us have been freed but have not departed from that place of captivity. Many of us have been set free inside of our hearts, but we haven't departed from that place of captivity. We've, we've made our bed in captivity. We are familiar with captivity. To us, captivity is freedom because it's all we have known for generations on generations on generations. We don't know the difference. And God is saying, leave that place of captivity, which is not so much a physical place, but a place of idolatry inside of our heart. That's what we've been talking about as we've been going through Isaiah, the idolatry, the idolatry. And we have these idols inside of our hearts that, that, that we are in captivity to, and God has freed and he said, leave them. Leave the place of captivity. Leave and touch no unclean thing on your way out. When leaving Egypt, the Egyptians gave them so many things. Here God is saying, leave. Don't touch no unclean thing on your way out. Sometimes we could be trying to leave the place of idolatry, but we carry elements of that idolatry with us on the way out. We know we've been called to leave it, but inside of our hearts, there are elements of it that we carry with us. We're trying to break free. We're trying to leave. We absolutely believe God has freed us. Yes, he has. But as we're trying to leave, there's, there are things of it that we sort of covet. Some of those things have become part of our everyday lives. And leaving this place of captivity, it often requires disconnecting from the things that you relied on in that place of captivity. But there's encouragement that comes with that too. He says, you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, if the messenger brought bad news, they would take flight. They would leave as quickly as they can because the enemy is still coming after them. You would have to run in haste. You would have to take flight. And it was a scary situation. It was fear involved with leaving. 
And again, there's these echoes of the Exodus narrative in the midst of this. When they left Egypt, God led them with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He had their backs and he had their fronts. He was making sure that they was protected. The point is that they had nothing to fear. They were being both led by God and protected by God. And one of the biggest hindrances to actually leaving the place of idolatry and captivity is this actual fear. Sometimes we built up a dependency on the thing that we are captive to. And we fear life without it. But if I don't do this, what about that? There's some element of fear connected with actually leaving that you feel there's going to be a loss that you can't replace. There's a fear connected inside of it. He said, they don't need to take flight and move in haste like, like people who are afraid because we trust our God who leads us out of bondage while protecting us as we go. He keeps talking here in the verses 13 to, through 15, this arm of the Lord that keeps being talked about is described as a wise servant. This arm of the Lord, the power of God, this, this army general, described as a wise servant. You look at verses 13 through 15. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. The servant will act wisely. This would have brought to mind wisdom literature, like Proverbs. Like Proverbs where both wisdom and folly are described as these beautiful women that are calling the people to trust and follow their ways. Folly represents idolatry. But wisdom is the way of the servant. Wisdom is the arm of the Lord, his power displayed. This, this wisdom, this true wisdom, folly acts like it's wisdom, but it's not. It's idolatry, but true wisdom is different, and it doesn't act the same way as folly does. And he will be lifted up and exalted like a king's coronation. But now we're starting to recognize that there's something off about him. There's something there's something that's not lining up. He looks appalling and disfigured. He doesn't look the way that we would expect. This wisdom, this arm of the Lord, this rescuer. He doesn't look like we would expect. And this unexpected way will be in concert with how he sprinkles the nations. 
See, the priests, they would sprinkle the blood of goats and bulls and, and on, on, on lambs that represented the people, and they would be sacrificed as a means of purifying the people of sin. And, but somehow, this arm of the Lord, somehow this wide servant will sprinkle the nations. But everything looks weird. And this unexpected way will be in concert with how he causes kings to shut their mouths. Because in a culture that has distorted the understanding of power, that has distorted what power looks like, what power does, what power feels, this wisdom, which is power displayed by the servant, is unheard of. Power doesn't act like that. It's confusing. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. They've never heard power functioning like this. And then 52 says, your God reigns, he's victorious, he rolled up his sleeves and displayed his power. Then 53 explains all the glory details of how it all looked, how it was all worked out. Verses 1 through 3 says, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. And Isaiah's writing, he asked this question, who actually believes the story of the messengers? Who believed it? Because it's not an easy message to believe. There's all these things that contradict everything that they understood it to even look like. The arm of the Lord is not like Saul or the, or the other pagan kings that, 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 that look the part. Nothing about the arm of the Lord will cause them to stand out to us. No, it's just the opposite. The arm of the Lord will be despised and rejected by the very people that he came to save. Some people would ignore or bypass him intentionally without even knowing who he was. So Isaiah connects believing this message to divine revelation. Who has seen the arm of the Lord? To whom has he been revealed? Because it won't fit in with what the world said is powerful. It won't make sense. We won't connect the dots in our own intellect. That's not what will happen. To recognize Jesus as the mighty arm of the Lord who came to set captives free takes a revelation from God for it to make sense because the rest of the story doesn't. It won't fit in to, to, to what makes sense to us, how we process it. We need God to, to make it make sense. 
That's why Jesus says in John 6 and 44, no one comes to me unless the Father first draws him. Verses 4 through 6 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Apart from mirrors, it's hard to, to see ourselves. That's why we need community. We need people around us who see and notice stuff about us that we don't notice ourselves. Like you got some lint in the back of your head. And, I, and I, that's just how God designed it. You need others. You just can't see yourself by yourself. And Jesus, they saw a man getting crushed, bruised, weighted down. And it was clear that God was, 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 was judging. And our math told us he must have done something to deserve that. That looks ugly. That looks horrifying. But what we were witnessing is the weight of our sins on him. What they were witnessing was the weight of their own sins on him. What they were witnessing is God judging our sins on him. This disfigured man that we wanted to avoid, that had been crushed for our iniquities. And we were the sheep that had gone astray, all of us. Choosing our own path ever since the garden. But the Lord has taken the burden of our sin and idolatry and then lays it on Jesus. Here's the problem. Not only do we misunderstand who was the arm of the Lord going toward and set us free, but we also misunderstand the enemy and the battlefield. See, the enemy is the idolatry of our own hearts, our sin. The enemy is, 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 is he's going to war against our sin. The battlefield is happening in, in our hearts, but it's being put on display. And we get to see it walked out in Jesus, and, 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 and they are literally watching the price of peace on Jesus' back. I think about Luke 19, 41 through 42. Jesus, he's... He's entering into Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. He's doing it intentionally. His face was like a flint. But as he is going in, it says this in 41 and 42. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day 
the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And he continues to walk. Let me read verses 7 to 12 and start setting us up for closing. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of light, life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and many intercessions for the transgressors. This is that section of scripture that the Ethiopian eunuch was studying. That he was processing when the Holy Spirit led Philip to him. And then you notice that Isaiah speaks of future events both in the past tense and in the future. Which makes sense why the Ethiopian eunuch is like He's talking about himself. He's talking about somebody else. What's actually happening here? Like, it has happened and it will happen at the same time. There's both a crushing and a prospering inside of this text, and it's confusing. Did he win or did he not win? What's going on here? Philip, get up here, sit down here, and talk with me on this. There's this new exodus that's happening. Jesus is the Passover lamb who sprinkles the nations with his blood. And he rescues his entire flock that has gone astray. It's a new Passover, a new sin offering that's once and for all. That's what's happening here. This is the way that the Father chooses defeat the power of the idols by taking power away from our sins. He's fighting a different strategy. It's our sin that gives the power to the idols and he's going after our sin. So you must defeat sin. And I want to close reading how this is processing Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, and this, this pray. So I'll read Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me pray. Father, you are consistently faithful. You have rescued us and you continue to rescue us. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that your word takes root in fertile ground of our hearts. That you, Lord, would cause them to, to sprout, to bear much fruit in the private places of our hearts, in the public places of our lives, in our families, that we will live as a people that really know they are free. Free from everything that the world says, this is what will give you power, this is what will give you joy, this is what will give you strength, this is what will get you what you want, but that we will know that you are our king. We thank you for your grace this morning, Lord. We ask that you will continue to do a work that is only done in and through you. We give you all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name. 